when he, when he started advancing slides himself. And so now we're going to see if um, I can keep up. Text this morning is from Romans chapter 11. Yes, it works. Go tech team. Give a shout of praise for these godly men and women up there. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have read your word. And God, what we need to hear now is your voice, not mine. We need to hear yours. And Father God, we pray that your voice, the power of your spirit, would ring powerfully true through your word. That you would advance your kingdom in our lives. That you would give us faith. That you would increase our faith. And that you would give us love and adoration for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, originally, the, um, I think the game plan was we're going to do Romans 11, 1 to 10 this week, and 11 to 15 next week. And I just found that categorically impossible. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the trees. I think of this text as the forest and the trees. So we're going to do the trees in verses 1 to 10 this week, and we're going to do the forest in verses 1 to 15 next week, and look at it that way. You know, we see as we kind of march through this section, 9 to 11 in Romans, Paul is continuing to wrestle with the implications of the Jews' rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, of the ingathering of the Gentiles into the people of God, and for what this all means for our future. And, and in the midst of this, this conversation that Paul is having with the audience and with us, Paul uses a lot of three, even four, if I have time I'll add in fourth, we'll see, but certainly three specific verbs describing God's interaction with the Jews and with the Gentiles. And the three verbs he uses, we talk about a lot, but they're rather startling sometimes if we accept the fullness of that teaching. And so we're going we're to take some time and we're going to look at these verbs. And then we're going to deal with some of the objections to the, the meaning I think they give us. And then we're going to finish with some application. Verse 2. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Paul is going out of his way to explain that God has absolutely, positively, categorically not rejected the Jews, despite the fact that many of the Jews now have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And the big question that we're left with is this word that he uses. He said, God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Now, I doubt that foreknew is a word that you use on a daily basis. I doubt in the morning, you know, you're having a cup of coffee and, you know, your spouse come down, comes down and you say, I foreknew you. We, we don't speak like that. 
And, uh, and so we have to go back and say, what the heck does this word mean, right? Now, Paul uses it tw- only twice in all of his writings. Once here in Romans 11, once in Romans 8. Only times Paul uses it. It's used elsewhere throughout the New Testament. Luke uses it. He uses it in Acts. Peter uses it in 1 Peter. And so, yeah, one of the ways that you say, well, what does this word that none of us use mean is we go back and we say, how did other people use it? We, we look at the immediate context and say, can we look here in verse 2 and figure out what it means? And then we look how others have used it and say, what did, what did they mean? Now, there are some who say, when they say the, this word foreknew or foreknowledge, there are some that say that word means that in eternity past, God looked forward, God saw those who would have faith in Him of themselves, and that then he chose those people. You follow me? That's, 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 that's one argument. One argument is that God, when it says God foreknew someone, it means that God knew something about the future. That God, operating out of his omniscience, looked forward and said, I know that Joe Believer in 1,500 years would have faith in me of themselves, therefore I am going to elect them unto salvation because I foresaw their future faith. That's one view. I'm gonna, you can hear me argue that I think that is not the best understanding of this word. Look at four reasons why, based on what this word foreknowledge means. First, notice the text does not say that God foreknew what people would do. It says that he foreknew them. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. There's a big difference between saying, I foreknow what you're going to do in 2,000 years. I know what actions you're going to take in 2,000 years. And saying, I foreknew you. We can see one speaks to the, the knowledge of future events. One speaks to the knowledge of a person that begins in eternity past before they were ever born. Here God says, I foreknew. Not I foreknew what you would do. I foreknew you. Second reason for new cannot mean the knowledge of future events. Look at the contrast between, let's see, if, let's see, here we go here. Oh boy. I'm ready to play a video game, not that I have in 15 years. Okay. Look at the contrast between verses 1 and verse 2. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There's a contrast. The contrast is between rejection and foreknowledge. Did you see that? God is saying, some people I rejected and some people I did not reject because I foreknew them. Now, if foreknowledge is, as some understand it, God in eternity past, knowing the future of choices you're going to make, particularly choices involving Him, and then God choosing those whom would have already chosen Him, this contrast falls apart. Because if that were the case, God would foreknow everyone. If, if foreknowledge means God foreknowing your future choices, that means God knows, Joe Believer is going to accept me, And I also foreknow that Joe Unbeliever is going to reject me. And so that can't be the meaning of this word. Because foreknowledge and rejection are contrasted. Third reason. I know we're getting really technical. Third reason foreknow cannot mean the knowledge of future events and choices we would make. Many scholars see foreknow as the New Testament equivalent of yada in Hebrew. Yada in Hebrew means to know. For no. You see why they, they make a connection. Just look at, listen to two examples of how the word yada is used. Amos 3.2. You only have I known from all of the families of the earth. Are we really believe that God only knew the people of Israel in the sense of he only knew about them? He didn't know about the Persians or the Hittites. He didn't know anything about the Greeks. Absolutely not. God knows, God knows everything about everyone, right? So here Amos, in Amos chapter 3, he's using the word know to describe a relationship, to describe intimacy. You only have I known, you only have I revealed myself to in this way out of all of the nations of the earth. That's, that's the power of what he's saying. You only have I been in this relationship with. Jeremiah 1.5 Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. If you've read the book of Jeremiah, one of the things you've seen is that Jeremiah does not want to be a prophet. <laughs> he begs to be let out of being a prophet. He's run, I mean, he's, he's, he's just a step removed from Jonah, running from God. And here we have God saying to Jeremiah, I chose you. I appointed you. I consecrated you. I did not appoint or consecrate you after you said, oh, yes, I'll do it. I did not look forward in the future and say, oh, Jeremiah would choose to follow me. Therefore, I will choose him. He says, no, he doesn't say that. He says, before you were born, I knew you. I knew you. I chose you before you had ever done anything to merit that. I set my love and grace upon you before you were ever born. Finally, and fourth, foreknew cannot mean knowledge of future events or actions because it is not the predominant New Testament usage of the word. So this is from the, the Zondervan Bible Encyclopedia. Quote, The upshot then is that foreknow and foreknowledge, when applied to God in Scripture, designate much more than what belongs to the attribute of omniscience. In each instance, these terms refer to God's determining will. And though each passage views this will from the aspect appropriate to its context, yet the term takes on the strength of foreordain and foreordination, and in some cases expresses the same thought. So, so what's this all getting? This is getting at when Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's saying God didn't reject them because he chose them because he foreordained them not because of the knowledge of anything that they would do not because of anything in themselves but because of his grace and his will as we're going to see further God didn't reject them because he decided to set his love upon them and his commitment to the exercise of his love for the people that he whom he had chosen would not be changed second word we've got to look at because it's a little shocked, shocking to us. Verse 3, the word kept. 11, starting in verse 3. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know, we're transported back to the book of 1 Kings. And we see in the book of 1 Kings, Ahab and his wife Jezebel on a mission to wipe out the worship of the one true God. And, and, and much of the nation of Israel is committing apostasy following Ahab and Jezebel. They're worshiping Baal, the Canaanite storm god. You know, this God that was represented as a bull, this God that people would worship, they, part of worship would be having sex with each other in, in, in the hopes that that would cause Baal to shower the earth with rain and produce a crop. This is how bad it's gotten in the nation of Israel. That by and large, they are walking away from Yahweh, the living God, and they're worshiping this storm God. And, and the people that don't commit apostasy, Ahab and Jezebel say, round them up and kill them. Round up the priests. Round up the prophets of God. Kill them. We are going to eliminate this Yahweh and the worship of him from the face of the earth. And Elijah is, is one of, and Elijah, here, you know, you can appreciate Elijah's thinking, this, this isn't working. I mean, you, you can hear the humanity in his plea, right? I'm the only one left. They've gotten everybody. It's just a matter of time. God, we're losing. What are we going to do? You know, I mean, if, you, if you've ever been in a place where you felt alone as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a friend in Elijah. If there has ever been a time where you felt alone in your family, alone in your neighborhood, alone at your office, as standing up for Jesus Christ, you have a friend in the prophet Elijah. Because he felt so very alone. And God answers him. And what does God say? He says, you're not alone. And what's striking about this verse is he doesn't say, you're not alone, I'm with you. 
although we know that's true. He says, you're not alone. There are 7,000 people that I have what? I've kept. I've reserved, if you have the NIV. I've kept them. And notice what he says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, it's okay, Elijah. There's still 7,000 people that have not rejected me so far. You're not alone. He doesn't say, Elijah, there's still 7,000 people that haven't been killed yet. You're not alone. He says, Elijah, I have kept 7,000. Me, I did it. I ensured it. I prevented those 7,000 from committing apostasy. I have saved them. I have ensured their salvation. God's saying, I took care of it. And Elijah can have confidence because it doesn't rest on those 7,000 people and it doesn't rest on Ahab and Jezebel's ingenuity. It rests on God's sovereign power exerted even in salvation. We have to say God is sovereign, which we say God is in control. And one of the things we start to see these texts, these verbs are relating is that God is also in control. He is sovereign in salvation as he exerts his sovereign grace. He says, I've kept him. You get the sense, and especially if you read 1 Kings, that if God didn't keep these 7,000 people, they would not be there. And perhaps there are times in life when you are at a dark moment and you think, God, I, I, I just give up. I can't do this anymore. And, and, and has God kept you in that moment? Has God held you in his hand? Has God said, because I chose you, I can say, I will never leave you or forsake you and nothing can take you out of my hand. That's how God exerts his sovereign grace. Third word we see describing this is, is just the word grace. Verse 5 and 6. Again, we see a contrast. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul just finished telling us how in, in the past God kept 7,000 for himself on the basis of, of, of grace, presumably. And here now he, can't, he says, hey, at now, today, there is still a remnant. Today, again, he's writing amidst this backdrop where people are saying, I thought God was the Messiah of the Jews and all of them have rejected him, by and large. And we're going to talk a lot about that next week, but he's saying, by and large, that's the problem. The problem is, God's people, Israel, have rejected him. And Paul's dealing with the reason that's a problem and what to do about it. And here he's saying, no, it's okay. You may not see a ton of them, but there's some that are still there. And they are a remnant. And even as the previous remnant was kept by God, this remnant is chosen by grace. And what do you think of when you hear that word? Grace. Maybe, maybe you think of that time in which you sinned against someone deeply and before you could apologize before you could ask for forgiveness before you could make any type of promise or plea saying I'll never do that again they looked at you full in the eyes and they said I forgive you I forgive you they give you grace they gave you something you didn't ask for they gave you something you didn't of yourself deserve. I hope as a follower, of, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've had the opportunity to give that kind of grace to someone else, even as you have been given grace, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of God's mercy and favor. Grace means unmerited favor. It's something that we, we don't deserve. It's something that, that we're not looking for. It's something that in of ourselves, we have nothing to make us worthy of it. Paul, Paul says here, otherwise it wouldn't be grace. If someone could look at us and they could say, well, yeah, you've really turned your life around and you've for, asked for forgiveness, I forgive you. They're forgiving us, but they're not giving us grace maybe because we, we've, now, we've now committed to changing. We've, we, we've demonstrated that we won't do it again. 
Grace is when you get something that you're not looking for. Grace is the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road going to kill Christians and God saving him there when he wasn't looking for it. That's grace. And we get this contrast between grace and works. Are we, are, are we really to believe that we're saved because God said, I saw that in the future you would have faith? What would that look like? Imagine standing up in heaven one day. And imagine having God tell, ask you, why are you here and no one else in your neighborhood? No one else in your family, maybe. Why are you the only one of, of the circle that you traveled in that believed in me? What are you going to say? Well, God, I, I prayed a prayer and I repented. I believed in you. And I guess they just didn't. God, I... I guess I was just more wise. I was more spiritual than they were. God, you know, I, I guess I just, I got it. And they didn't get it. I had an interest. God, they made fun of you. But Jesus, I, I, I knew not to make fun of you. I understood what you were talking about. Is that really what we're going to say? No. Who, who's getting the credit? At that point, are we coming before God thinking, God, you've saved me because of grace? Or, wow, God, you've saved me because I made a really good choice and no one else did. That's not grace. That's works. That doesn't give God the credit. That gives us the credit. We're saved by grace. We're going to stand before the throne of God one day and let your plea when God says, why are you here? Be, I don't know. You gave me grace. You poured your mercy on me. I don't know why you saved me. There was nothing in me. I, I was bad. I was a rebel. I hated you. I never would have chosen you, Jesus, unless you chose me. You gave me grace. Thank you for your grace. The way of God from the beginning has been to choose a people for himself based on grace and nothing that they would do, including choosing him. We could go everywhere. We'll just look at two. First Samuel 12. For the Lord will not forsake His people. Why? He won't forsake His people for His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Here God is writing to the nation of Israel in the midst of them sinning by asking for a king. And now they've figured out they've sinned and they think, Oh no, please don't reject us. And what does He say? He doesn't say, I won't reject you because you've, you've figured out that you've sinned. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I won't reject you because I think you're starting to get the message. He says, I will not reject you because I've chosen you. <laughs> because I, it pleased me to make you my people. And I will not reject you. For my name's sake. Not for, because of you, but for my name's sake. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the sake of the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God planned the salvation of everyone who would believe before any of our lives came to be. Not because of choices we would make, but because of His grace. Let grace be grace, and let God be God. You know, sometimes we come before God, and I think when we talk about, you know, salvation and, and free will, I feel like we sound like Thomas Paine. You know, give me liberty or give me death. We say, give me free will or give me death. Let grace be grace, and let God be God. That is it. Let Him shower you with the grace that He gives you. Not because of anything in you, but because of His mercy and His love and His grace. I described you, you know, the, the, the position that God only chooses people on the basis of their choice of Him and that everyone has the equal opportunity to choose Christ is one strand of a group of theology called Arminianism. We're going to, try to, we're going to get educated this morning. It's called Arminianism, the idea that, okay, people can, everyone can freely choose Christ and that God only chooses those who would choose Him. You've heard me now spend about 15 minutes saying that that's wrong in this facet. 
and, and, and you've heard me articulate the view often called Calvinism, which is an unfortunate term. And it's an unfortunate term because it gives the impression that it only started when he, John Calvin was born in the 16th century, when in fact it significantly predates him. It gives you the impression that people follow him rather than following the Lord as he has revealed himself in Scripture. The truth is that the belief that people are unable to come to Christ apart from a special work of God's grace, which he brings to bear on those whom he has chosen, has been around since the beginning of Christianity. We see St. Augustine and, and St. Thomas Aquinas represented. We see every major reformer in the Protestant Reformation represented, from Luther to Calvin to Wycliffe in the 1300s to Zwingli. All of them. We see it represented in a broad stream of evangelicalism today in pastors like John Piper, John MacArthur, James MacDonald, Mark Dever, Tim Keller, Mark Driscoll. I go to these pastors' conferences every other year where you've got 5,000 pastors under the age of 40 that would, would agree with this. And I say that not to say that that makes it right, because it doesn't. Either a minority opinion or a majority opinion does not make it right. I say that to say oftentimes we, we see this idea of Calvinism in the classroom or in some pulpits talked about as if it's the minority position that no one has ever really believed in and that doesn't make any sense. And, and, and I, so I say this to say, that's really just not true. It's really just not true. But let's look at a few objections, because there's a lot of objections. I'd love to preach for three hours on this, but I'm not going to today. Maybe next Sunday. Um, let's look at, at, at a few very quick objections to this idea that God exerts grace on those whom he has chosen. Objection number one. It doesn't sound like we have free will. When we talk about free will, we have to define our terms. You know, is the free will to decide where you're going to go to college and who you're going to marry different than the kind of free will that it would take to repent and believe? That's, that, that's a debatable question, which I'm not going to get into now. But it's worth, but I, I think when most people say free will, they mean, gosh, well, well, didn't God give us free will that any of us all around the earth can just choose Christ whenever we want, apart from any help? Yeah, I think when many of us think of free will, we think of the absence of restraint. We think of freedom to do what we want, when we want, how we want. The problem is that Scripture teaches that by nature, we do not have free will to choose Christ. We don't. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, Paul makes a contrast. He makes a contrast between spiritual people and natural people. People that are saved and people that are not saved. And he says, people that are not saved cannot understand spiritual things they are unable to and some of you have experienced that you've talked to someone about the lord and they look at you like you got five heads and no matter how eloquent you are they're just like you're crazy and then you could go and you could say the same things to someone in your small group and they're like high-fiving you and praising god so why is it that some people just they they, they get it and some people just don't because Paul says, well, they're equals so, in the natural man. Their hearts have not been opened. And this is worth pointing out because, you know, Arminians want to say, well, well, yeah, we do need God to, to seek us first, and we do need grace before we can choose Him freely. But God has already given us, everyone in, in the world, that grace. So now everyone can freely choose Him. The problem with that is, Paul's not talking about the past in 1 Corinthians 2, he's talking about the present. He's not saying, gee, in the past, the natural man couldn't understand spiritual things, but now they can. He's saying, no, right now, in first century Corinth, after Jesus is resurrected, after the Holy Spirit has come, there are people that cannot understand spiritual things because they have not been regenerated by the power of God. 
I would say they have not been born again. And now we may not like this, but that's what the text says. I remember talking about this one time with someone, and they said, Gosh, I just really don't like this, Chris. And I said, I don't care. I don't care if you don't like it. If there are not things in the, if there is nothing in the Bible that you don't struggle with, maybe you haven't read it a lot. I think part of maturity is coming up, coming head to head with doctrine and saying, "Gosh, this have this is hard truth, but I'm going to submit to it because it's it's God, it's God." Jesus in John six gives us this example of, of of do we do we just accept truth as it is or do we say I don't like it? John six, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father, not all who choose me, the Father gives to me. All who the Father gives me will come. And I won't cast them out. And not surprisingly, read verses 41 and 42, the Jews start to freak out. So we don't like this. It says that they grumble about this idea of God's election, of God's choosing. Jesus says... Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus says, hey, the only people that come to me are the people that God gives me. They freak out. He restates his position. He says, I'm not changing reality just because you don't like it. Skip down to verse 60 in in, in chapter 6. When many of the disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but they are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Here Jesus is talking. Some of them are grumbling and they're like, we don't like this. And he says, well, the reason you don't like it is you weren't given to me. You don't like it because you were not drawn by the Father to me. Maybe they will be in the future, but not yet. Not yet. People complain that if God chooses people that we do not have free will. But the scriptures teach it of ourselves. We don't have free will to choose Christ. Scriptures describe our hearts. It says that we are spiritually dead in transgressions. We're dead. We we have hard hearts. We have ears that do not hear. Eyes that do not see. This is the backdrop for so much of the Gospels. We're unable to choose Christ unless He chooses us first. Unless He does something in us. You know, the Reformation, the, the, the mantra of the Reformation, I prefer to call it Reformed theology rather than Calvinism, because the, the, the mantra of the Reformation was regeneration precedes faith. The Arminian wants to say faith precedes regeneration. You come forward freely, you give your life to Christ, and then you're born again. Whereas every major reformer looked at the scriptures and said, you are never going to believe until you're born again. Isn't that the backdrop in John 3? Nicodemus, trying to do it on his own. Nicodemus, a good, smart priest. And Jesus saying, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus, he's like, I can't make myself born again. That's his, I can't. How am I going to do that? And Jesus says, the Spirit does that. Regeneration precedes faith. Objection two. That's not fair. Now, when we hear God, when we hear the idea that God treats some differently than, we, than He treats others, we say, gosh, that doesn't sound fair. And by fairness, I think we mean opportunity. But the hard truth, however, is that God is not fair in that modern sense. R.C. Sproul writes, I think he does it well, he says, quote, But what is meant by fairness here? If by fair we mean equal, then of course the protest is accurate. God does not treat all men equally. Nothing could be clearer from the Bible than that. God appeared to Moses in a way that he did not appear to Hammurabi. God gave blessings to Israel that he did not give to Persia. 
Christ appeared to Paul on the Damascus road in a way that he did not manifest himself to Pilate. God has simply not treated every human being in history in exactly the same manner. That much is obvious. It's a hard truth. We may not like that truth, but it's truth nonetheless. We talk about God as if he, we're mad at this thought. Well, what do you mean if God, you know, he chooses someone other or this? That's not being fair. As if God owes us something. As if we are so virtuous of ourselves that we deserve something. Could it be that we've forgotten that the only thing God owes sinners is justice? Because ever since the fall, every one of us have been sinners by nature and by choice. We have been rebels against the king. God does not owe rebels fairness. He owes them justice. That's what's intrinsic to his character. That's what he cannot deny. Justice. Let grace be grace. Let God be God. Let's not make him try to conform to our modern understandings of fairness. We see this in Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. By no means. That could actually better be translated, God forbid we say that God is unjust. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We didn't talk about it because of time, but you see that in verses 6 to 10? God comes down to the nation of Israel and he hardens them. He gives them a spirit of stupor. God takes some people and he opens their hearts and he gives, takes, takes these other people and he hardens their hearts. And, and some people want to say, well, he only hardened their heart because they had already hardened their heart. Well, that doesn't solve the problem. Because if God comes in and hardens someone's heart, well, then they can't seek him anyway. It's the same dilemma. God opens some hearts. God closes others. When the fall happened, there were several things that God could have done if we, if we step back and think about it logically. When the fall happened and Adam and Eve rebelled, God could have said, fine, no one's going to be saved. No one. I'll let you live your life. I'll kick you out of garden. I'll let you live your life. I'll let you, you know, live however long until you guys blow yourselves up. And after you die, you'll go to hell. That's what we deserve. Talk about fairness. That's what we deserve. God could have said, well, I'm going to save everyone. Could have done that. He could have done each of those things, but, those are, but neither of those are what he did. He said, I'm going to save some. And we sometimes get all bent on ship. We say, but this just sounds crazy that God would save some and not all. The crazy thing is not that God saves some and not all. The crazy thing is why does God save anyone? Why does God save any of us? Why does God seek any of us on the Damascus Road? Why does God seek any of us in the church nursery? Why does God bring His Spirit upon us to give us new birth when we want nothing to do with Him? When there's nothing inherently in us to, to make God say, well, I've got to save them. Let grace be grace. Let God be God. You know, the, the final objection, really quickly, is the emotional objection, we might say. It's the objection that says, but what about the family member, the person that I love that is not a believer? Does that mean that they're not a believer, but you know, God, has, God hasn't chosen them yet? That, that's hard for me to hear. And that's a, fa that's a hard thing. You know, I spent the first five years of my life, I, I was an Arminian, and, and now I, I have not been the last however many years since I've been in Christ. And it's, yeah, and I pray for my family that is not in the Lord, and I know the only thing that's going to save them is if God opens up their hard hearts. But here's what you do if, if that's the struggle, and that's, a, that's an emotional, hard struggle. The, the, the best thing you can do is trust God. You've got to trust God. Is God just is God who, who is the God that you know do you trust God with that brother or that sister or that spouse because you know where they are now isn't necessarily where they're going to finish if they're still alive there's still time 
God opens some hearts when someone's four. He opens other hearts when they're 65. There's people that God's opened their heart when they're on their deathbed. So wherever they are now is not necessarily where they are going to finish. It's a faith struggle. Do I trust God? I remember when I came, the first reason I came, I want to know about Christianity, was I said, where is my dad that's dead? Is he in heaven or is he in hell if there is such a place? Where is my old man? And the irony is I never got an answer to that question. But I came that I said, I can trust God with the answer. I can trust him with the answer. He's enough. A few quick applications from this weighty doctrine. Live in the riches of God's grace. Gosh, some of us think we can never come to Christ because we think, well, I didn't grow up in church. And, you know, I, I was at a car, I was at a uh, used car dealership the other day. I'm talking to the, talking to the, the, the owner and the uh, employee. And the owner, and I'm talking about the Lord. I was trying to get some beautiful feet. If you were here last week. And I'm trying to talk about Lord, convince him to come here at Trinity. And the owner said, well, I'll think about it. And he walks away and his employee says, man, if he ever set foot in a church, he would burst in a ball of flame. <laughs> said, well, I'm going to pray for you. Um, but but why, why is it? Because some of us, we have this idea. I, I can't come to God until I get it together. If, 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 if the pastor knew what I had done, oh, he'd throw me out the front back door. I can't. No. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God's grace. God's grace. You know, some of us, we, we live in this emotional torment, even after we're in Christ. It's like two steps backward, two steps forward, one step back, and we think, oh no, I did it again. Is God going to be done with me now? Is God going to be finished with me now? Have I, have I sinned my way out of God's grace? Have I lied too much? Have I backslidden into drinking too much? Have I let down my spouse and lied to her too much? Have I, gosh, you know, I haven't had quiet time in a long time. I couldn't even tell you, you know, can't, can barely even recognize the old from the New Testament. And we think, is God done with me? Sometimes we rest our, our security in Christ in our works. But let God, let grace be grace. Do not think for a moment that it is your works that sustain you before the God of the universe. Do not think for a moment that it is your works that God is going to say, oh, come on in. You lived a good Christian life. You tithed. You served on the deacons. And you went on three mission trips. Welcome in, good and faithful servant, because of what you did. Do not think for a moment that is the way that God works. It's grace. Let his grace rain on you, wash over you, shower you. No, it's nothing about me, either before I was a Christian or now that I am a Christian. It's grace. I know that I am bad of myself, but you are grace-filled God. Look forward with joy that when you stand before the living God and he says, why are you here? You can just say grace grace. Two, be bold in sharing the gospel. It is no secret that the modern missionary movement was birthed by those who trusted in the fact that God chooses those whom he has decided to set his grace upon. It's no surprise. We, in the, you know, we see uh, Count von Zinzendorf sending the Moravian brethren in the 14th and 15th century all over Europe, to, all over South America. It's no surprise we see John Calvin's Geneva being the first that sent missionaries to South America as you know, Protestant missionaries. It's no surprise that the Baptist William Carey, that J. Hudson Taylor, that David Brainerd, all went far to difficult, dangerous places. Why? Because they knew, well, since Jesus hasn't come back yet, there's some people that God's just waiting to open up their heart, and we're going to go, and, you know, the Lord might make us the vehicle through which that heart opens. And we, and we can have courage. Hudson Taylor was seven years preaching the gospel in East Asia before a single person converted. Seven years, that was all he did. 
Imagine if you went through Fairfield County every day, 10 hours a day, and you just tried to witness to people. You think if no one said yes in seven years, you'd say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just keep sticking around and doing it. Why? Hudson Taylor writes in his journal, if I felt like it depended on me and that they had the free will to choose me, well, if they all have the free will to choose me, that means it's all about me. And if people after seven years keep saying, no, I'm going to pack up my bags and I'm going to go home and think, surely they can get someone better for this job because I'm not good enough. But he says, no, after seven years, no converts. He says, I can stick around because I know because there's someone that's going to say yes. And praise God that he stuck around because after seven years, God opened up a harvest field in East Asia of people that would believe. We, we, we can witness boldly for the gospel when we recognize that our job is to faithfully communicate the message. It's not the person that opens their heart. It's the living God. Gosh, if it was up to us to save someone, how would you sleep at night? If it was just a matter of you and their free will, I don't know how you can really say I go to sleep and sleep well. I remember when I, was, when I believed that. And I would think of my brother and I would think my brother's going to go to hell because of me. Because I can't say it right. Because I can't answer that question. No. It's God. God always initiates. Three, pray boldly. Here again, I'm going to be cheeky. I don't understand how an Arminian can pray for salvation for someone. I think it makes no logical sense. Because if you believe that people can freely choose and that God never violates someone's free will, how do you pray for them? I don't know about you, when I pray for someone, I'm praying that God, God, open their heart, open their eyes, give them faith, break down these arguments they've built up against you, break down these intellectual things, heal their heart, this emotional baggage that they're walking around, that image of the bad father that they had, break it down, heal it. I am asking God to interfere in their life, up one side, down the other, to save them. When, you're, when you believe that God is the one who chooses based on His grace, you can pray boldly because you know that it is God the one that opens hearts. Your prayers may be the wondrous vehicle through which the Holy Spirit moves to take a heart that hates Jesus and give them love for Jesus. Four, wrestle over the Scriptures yourself. Clearly, you've gathered from, my, from the sermon that there are two arguments here. There are two sides. There are two different ways in which people on this issue have interpreted Scripture. And it would be a mistake to think that because there are two views, that it's not important. That would be a mistake because it's in God's Word. He's revealed it. Clearly, He wants us to know something about it. I think you've heard me argue it has some, some strong application. It would be a mistake to believe it just because I say it's true. Or to, believe, or to believe the opposite view because someone else says it's true. That would be a mistake. Let your conscience be captive to the Word of God and ensure that the Word of God is not captive to your conscience. Sometimes we come upon a hard teaching and we say, I don't like it, therefore I won't believe it or I won't think about it. And that's immaturity. When you see something difficult in Scripture, that's an excuse to dig down deep and wrestle and ask wise people questions and find out what God is trying to reveal and pray for a heart that is ready to accept it, whether you like it or not. And be careful. You can't just dismiss it. I mean, I'm going to be cheeky again. This is one of those issues where people say, well, God can't choose some and not others because God is love. And they dismiss the whole argument. That's immaturity. Because it's taking a culturally conditioned definition of the word love and it putting it over the whole of Scripture. It's worth noting that it's the same reason people will say, well, good grief, everyone's got to be saved because God is love. I can show you a modern pastor in Michigan who has a book that he says the same thing. Everyone is saved because God is love. Love wins. Okay, not... You know, it's the same thing that people say. They say, well, it must, it must be okay for two committed people to live in a same-sex monogamous relationship. God must be okay with that because they're loving each other and God is love. And when we just say God is love and we use our culturally conditioned definition of what that means, we can ignore a lot of clear teaching in Scripture. 
wrestle with the text yourself in their original context, their original meaning. Five, if you are not a believer, do not let this doctrine hinder you from coming to Christ. Let it free you. Let it free you. Because you realize you don't have to get it together to come to Jesus. You realize, be, be encapsulated with the wonder that perhaps before eternity began, God said, I am going to set my love on this person. I am going to redeem them. I am going to save them. I am going to show them mercy. And they don't have to get it together. There's not some list of sins that keeps them out of the kingdom. There is nothing that blocks them from coming to me right now. There is no sin so great that the blood of Christ is not powerful enough to wash it away. That's the God who we worship. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we cannot live. He died the death that we deserve to die because of our sins, that we could have life and have it to the full. Maybe today is the day where God opens your heart and you come for you and say, I want Jesus. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is Grace, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Now Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Amen. We ask the ushers to please come forward and uh, help us to worship the Lord with the giving of our tithes and offerings. And we ask Ellery Kramka to come forward.